when he wrote those words, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. But the truth is, in John 10, 28, Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And by the way, it's not just because of his love for us. It's because we are a gift from God the Father to God the Son. Do we realize that? My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's a truth to build a life on. And we do. Father, thank you so much for this truth. As we gather, as we assemble this morning to praise you, to pray, to hear your word, to listen to your voice to us and invite you to change us, O oh God. Knowing uh, of our security held firmly in your hand as a gift from the Father to the Son who he loves. Oh God, what a precious truth this is to us. And so with confidence, we boldly approach the throne of grace in prayer. And with confidence, we know, oh God, that you are changing our lives from grace to grace. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, use this time now to shape us, encourage us, warn us, correct us, and demonstrate your love for us as we demonstrate our love for you, O oh Lord. We look forward to celebrating in a few moments the emblems of our salvation, representative of what Christ has done for us that we might be in the Father's hand, in the hand of the Son, safely. Oh God, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. Speak to us, Lord. We're listening. In Jesus' name, amen. I think you'll agree with me that the rift between Christianity and the culture of the world is growing wider. We live in one of those historic cycles where the chasm between God's people and the culture itself continues to widen. As I was thinking about this, and uh, this is really what our text is about in Zechariah 10 today, I was, I was, as I was thinking about this, I, a picture popped into my mind about the far too many people who are trying to straddle that line between the church or the people of God or Christ and, and the culture of this world. And, and as the rift gets larger, the balancing act of trying to remain with one foot in the culture, in the world, and one foot in Christ is, is becoming a, a gymnastics routine that most of us are incapable of. If any of you have ever stood on a dock and put your foot on the boat and someone untied the boat 
and the boat starts to move out, you've got to decide very quickly which way are you going to go. Because if you don't, you either jump in the boat, you jump on the dock, or you're going in the water. The boat's moving, the dock's solid. And I would submit to you that our culture is like the boat that has unhitched itself from the dock, the dock of God's truth. And if you, got your, if you have your foot on that boat, I recommend you quickly take it off and secure yourself back on the dock of God's truth. Because what we see happening around us when it comes to issues of morality, what is right and what is wrong, more than ever, people are tending to trust their own feelings, their own instincts, and uh, cultural pressure. In fact, I can't tell you the number of times I've heard in the last couple of weeks the phrase, my personal beliefs. That's code for, I don't agree with everything God says. I have my own thing going. I, I dine at the uh, table of certain truths that, that God has put forth, particularly in the matters of social justice. I kind of like the word of God on how he cares for the poor and the oppressed and all of that, but I don't like when he comes to meddling in my life. So I have my personal beliefs. It's a, a recurring message in the scriptures. Uh, it, it's not a new message to us today. In fact, when I looked at Zechariah 10, I, I, I kind of looked heavenward and said, I have to preach this same sermon again? There's virtually nothing new here. Over and over again, though, God continues to tell us the same thing. And why would he continue to tell God's people the same thing? Why do you tell your children the same thing over and over again? Is there any reason for that? Because they don't listen. My prayer today is that we listen. My prayer today is that if there's any of us in here that are sort of dipping into the culture and one foot into the word of God, that you will take that foot out of the culture in a very conclusive way and jump full into the works and word of God. Zechariah 10 is a continuation of Zechariah 9, really it's a sequel. In fact, the case has been built for certain things about God in Zechariah 9, that he's a promise keeper, that he's a peacemaker, that he's a protector. Pastor Nick delivered that to us. And that today we're going to look at developing practically the descriptions of God that are found here. But, but one of the descriptions that really carries on into chapter 10 particularly is found in chapter 9, verse 14, whereby it says, in just simply addressing God, the sovereign Lord will. So God reveals himself not only as a promise keeper and peacemaker and protector, but as it moves through this chapter in chapter 9, he declares himself sovereign. What does that mean, sovereign? Sovereign. It means that God is entirely in control of all things. He is absolutely in charge. There is no one above God. There is no one outside of the control of God, including all the forces of evil and everything else in the universe. God is sovereignly in control of all things. 
And the challenge for each of our lives, particularly as uh, uh, those who are straddling this line of, uh, of church and culture, Christ and culture, is the battle for sovereignty. Is it going to be the sovereignty of God in your life or the sovereignty of man? Are you in charge of your life? Are you, and, and by the way, that's a fool's exercise. It's entirely faulty to even envision the idea that you could be in control of your life. I know I'm preaching to the choir this morning, although only faint amens here and there. Remember what we talked about a couple of weeks ago? We got our hands up for music. Come on, people. We got to go in this, the Word of God. And, and here we are in this issue of sovereignty. And so God um, makes the case uh, and makes a play for exclusive trust in Him again. Is this something you haven't heard before? God, imagine that. God asking us to trust Him. Is that, is that novel to any of us? But that's what we find ourselves in again. Why? Because they aren't trusting Him. God's people notoriously don't trust God. As far as a moral and social contract, and, and I don't mean this but to be um, taken the wrong way, but younger Christians are conflicted by the noise of the culture and their own feelings. Never before has the culture aggressively pressed its agenda on everybody as it is now. So I know that growing up as a younger person is entirely, you are growing up in a world that is so foreign to me that I hardly, I mean, when I read in the scriptures about being an alien, I used to, you know, we are an alien, this is not our world, we're just a passing through and all that kind of stuff. Honestly, I never really kind of resonated with that. I knew the truth and I accepted the truth and all of that, but, but I didn't resonate with it. I am so resonating with it now. I've never felt like more of an alien in my entire life. I feel so uncomfortable in the culture. I feel so disconnected. I feel so different. There are virtually no values that the culture shares that I, that I have. It's, it's, it's so foreign now. Um, and so we are in this moment where God is saying... Um, the chasm is increasingly large. Now pick your side. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So I get it. Like for younger Christians, whether young chronologically or young in the faith, the noise of the culture is incredible. And the play on your feelings, the play on your emotions, in terms of social justice... Concerning the poor and the oppressed, yes, what the Bible says, everybody's jumping in there. Yeah, God's, God's saying the right things about that. But in terms of sexuality and gender issues, morality, maybe the Bible's outdated. After all, this is 2018. Again, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that said to me. This is, do you not understand, Reverend, this is 2018? Wow, no, you know what? I didn't. <laughs> I thought it was 1935. Well, that's exactly what we thought. Wake up, you're in 2018. 
they were saying here, do you not realize it's 582 B.C.? This isn't 1500 B.C., you know. Okay. Interesting co comment that uh, Tim Keller has made in his uh, book, Center Church, Doing Balanced Gospel-Centered Ministry in Your City. Let me read it to you. As with always with Tim, you've got to listen. Soak it in. He starts out, yes, our interaction with culture helps us adjust and change our understanding of the Bible for the better. But in the final analysis, the Bible must be seen as the ultimate authority over both the culture and our consciousness. If the Bible is instead seen as a fallible product of human culture, then we are locked in an endless interpretive circle that goes back and forth between our culture and the Bible. That's what I see happening. In this view, the Bible and culture are equally authoritative, which is to say equally relative. Thus, we may use the Bible to correct a culture, but we can, we can also use the culture to argue that parts of the Bible are now obsolete. This is why, for example, some mainline denominations use the Bible to denounce various forms of economic injustice in the United States, but at the same time, they insist that what the Bible teaches about sex and gender is oppressive and dated. Following this pattern, in every generation and culture, Christianity will be changing radically often contradicting the teaching of the church in other centuries and lands. There is no way for us to increasingly come to grasp the truth. But the deeper flaw in this hermeneutical circle, which is the interpretation of Scripture, approach is that it cannot exist in real life. Though we may say we make the Bible and culture equally authoritative, in the end, we really are not doing so. If we state that what the Bible says here is true, but what the Bible says over here is regressive and outdated, we have absolutized our culture and given it final authority over the Bible. Either the Bible has final authority and determines what in the culture is acceptable or unacceptable, or the culture has final authority over the Bible and determines what in the text is acceptable or unacceptable. And bottom line, it's time to choose either God's truth or the culture and its ideas. You can't stand straddling both. You have to choose. And I think, thankfully, we're living actually in a moment that I think is of great strategy for us and is, is, is a good moment, even though it's a hard moment. Because I actually believe it's clarifying those who truly belong to Jesus from those who've been pretending for a long time. Because as the chasm gets larger and as the cost gets greater, those who really belong to Jesus will stick with him. And those who've been pretending will flutter their way off into the culture. So we are in this moment that is not new. It's a historic cycle that we go through and we find it again in the text this morning. So the certain thing for the young or the confused Christian is this. You cannot go back and forth from Bible to culture. You've got to choose. You have to pick. There's going to be feelings, culture, opinions, or the Bible. 
That's the choice you're going to have to make. We use the word or the term, in God we trust. It appears in the currency in the country south of us. In God we trust. Do we really think the country south of us really trusts in God? Or our country for that matter? Is it either a, it's either a slogan or it is our identity. And that's a choice we have to make. And texts like Zechariah 10 force us again to make that choice. Whether we're going to totally trust God or hitch our wagon to the drift of culture. Um, part of the challenge, I just want to throw this in. I, I, I made an aside comment this morning with the, the, uh, the group this morning. And I, I just, there's a struggle with people who, who, um, who uh, you, you know, and we're talking, when we're talking about cherry picking from the culture or the, or the, the word of God and uh, choosing the word of God, they'd say, well, you know what, you cherry pick from the word of God as well. And regularly, they'll, they'll turn our attention to the Old Testament and say, you don't do that, you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do that. Listen, just in a nutshell, let's, let's understand something, that from the start of the book to the very end of the book, it's about Jesus Christ. Amen. The Bible is about Jesus Christ. Amen. Everything is pointing to Jesus Christ. Amen. He is the apex. He is the culmination of the scriptures. It, it all points to him. And unless you first of all understand that, you can't interpret the scriptures correctly. And what I mean by that is simply this. That in the Old Testament, the ceremonial and dietary laws were to point to Messiah. When Messiah came, he fulfilled the ceremonial and dietary laws. So when people say you cherry pick, you aren't doing the ceremonial and dietary laws anymore, they don't understand that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial and dietary laws. But the moral laws supersede and continue on throughout all of our lives. If you don't understand that distinction, you will be accused of cherry-picking Scripture. And I, I, it's, it's very difficult to explain this to people who are outside faith and don't know Jesus and don't care about Jesus. They, they can't picture this, but I want to make sure you all know this. So you're not sitting here saying, well, wait a second, we don't do, you know, there's certain things we don't do. Well, no, it's ceremonial, dietary, Jesus fulfilled. There's a point to Jesus, okay? So keep that in mind when people are saying this. So, so here we are this morning in Zechariah chapter 10. Let's read the text. Ask the Lord for rain in the springtime. It is the Lord who makes the storm clouds. He gives showers of rain to men and plants of the field to everyone. The idols speak deceit. Diviners or diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. Key, key uh, phrase that we're going to lock into. There are two kinds of people in the world. People who are wandering like sheep and people who march and walk strong. And it all depends on who you follow. The leadership in your life. We'll see that as we work our way through. Therefore the people wander like sheep, oppressed for lack of a shepherd or lack of a leader. My anger burns against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord Almighty will care for his flock, the house of Judah, and make them like a proud horse in battle. From Judah will come the cornerstone 
From him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler. Together they will be like mighty men trampling the muddy streets in battle. Because the Lord is with them, they will fight and overthrow the horsemen. I will strengthen the house of Judah and save the house of Joseph. I will restore them because I have compassion on them. They will be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. The Ephraimites will become like mighty men, and their hearts will be glad as with wine. Their children will see it and be joyful. Their hearts will rejoice in the Lord. I will signal for them or whistle for them like a shepherd would his sheep and gather them in because I know where they are. Surely I have redeemed them. They will be as numerous as before. Though I scatter them among the peoples yet in distant lands, they will remember me. They and their children will survive. Better word translated there, live. It's life, not just survival. And they will return. And I will bring them back from Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them to Gilead and Lebanon. And there will not be room enough for them. They will pass through the sea of trouble. The surging sea will be subdued. And all the depths of the Nile will dry up. Assyria's pride will be brought down. And Egypt's scepter will pass away. I will strengthen them in the Lord. And in his name they will walk, declares the Lord. This is a powerful encouragement to us today from the Lord himself. And this is his word. Well, whether we readily admit it or not, we are all the product of leadership, either imposed on us or allowed to influence us. And since we believe this is true, and and it is, what changes, as we look at this text this morning that is so critical about leadership and, and which leader you follow, what changes you need to make in your life starting right now? That's my challenge to you this morning in terms of which voices you are listening to. What leaders are you following? Um, you know, we, we are either have had leaders imposed on us or, or allowed to influence us. And so we need to be more selective and make sure uh, we know who we're inviting to influence us. So how do we decide what is right? Lots of people are throwing out, well, just follow your heart. How many times have you heard that? Follow my heart. If I followed my heart, I'd spend most of the days in an O. Henry factory. <laughs> Seriously, I, I, you know, I have to not follow my heart most of the time. If I follow my feelings, I'd be in jail most of the time. <laughs> Particularly lately. <laughs> follow the culture? I don't think so. Superstitions? Anybody got a rabbit's foot in here? <laughs> Nobody's going to pull one out and admit it. <laughs> Except for Pastor Calvin. He may have just shot the rabbit. And, <laughs> and it's just the remnants of what he didn't eat. <laughs> what about dreams? Are they reliable? Last night I had a dream that I was in a war zone. And I was intentionally grabbing the tail of a giant snake. I woke, here's what I did. I, I went to sleep last night and I determined, because I left this blank in my, I, I said, I'm going to talk about dreams for a moment and I'm going to leave it entirely blank and whatever I dream on Saturday night is going in. I'm going to tell them. I'm telling you, I, dream, I dreamed I was in a war zone. I had an Uzi, which I was pleased with, but there was a lot of other people who had more Uzis and more people than me. It was like me in this field and a bunch of people with Uzis and a giant snake that I grabbed by the tail. So... 
I'm not building a sermon on it. I can tell you that. So in this text, we're going to consider two kinds of leadership, very quickly this morning, two kinds of leadership, because when, when, uh, when the Israel audience read this text and saw the word shepherd, unless it was specifically talking about those guys who looked after those four-legged woolly things, when it was a metaphor, they, were all, they would always see the word leadership, because shepherding and leadership were, were parallel ideas in Israel, and they still are today. We, we talk about leaders, but here's the key thing in that verse, remember I said to you in verse 2? Therefore, the people wander, wander like sheep. Why? Because they are following directionless leaders. Our world is following directionless leaders. Directionless leaders produce wander weak people. As with every sector of God's revelation of himself, this one is no different. God makes a play for exclusive trust. Why? Here's why. Because he is totally sovereign and completely, de- and, and uh, he's totally sovereign and in charge of his creation, completely in charge of his creation. Uh, beloved, why is this so important? And, and quite honestly, I, I get somewhat discouraged by people in conversations about the sovereignty of God or who God is. If God were not entirely sovereign, None of the promises he's made to you are guaranteed to come true. Because unless he is entirely sovereign, he cannot guarantee a promise. God has declared himself as sovereign, and he either is sovereign. You can't be partially sovereign. You can't say, well, God's sovereign over here, but I like what the culture is saying over here. It's like you can't be partially pregnant. You either are or you aren't. God is sovereign, entirely sovereign, in control over all things. We can't go by our eyes or by our feelings, because when we go by our eyes or our feelings, we're going to base that and and just determine our revelation of God by that. Regularly, it looks like God's not in control. Our lives regularly look like that. But God is absolutely sovereignly in control. He declares himself that. That's why he says in in chapter 10, verse 1, ask the Lord for rain in the springtime. At the very elementary issue of life, and that's what rain is, God says, I'm in charge. Not the weatherman, not the scientists, not the corporations. I'm in charge of the rain. Now, I know we don't like rain on a day like today. We're like, oh, why did it have to rain today? But you, do you realize we couldn't live very long without rain? And why was this particularly important to an Israeli audience, a, a, people, a people of Israel? Because they were living in a culture, an agrarian culture, whereby rain was very important. It was to grow their crops. We were farmers. We would all say, yeah, the rain, the rain and the sun, it's got to have it. So they were all about the rain, and they were living in a culture that was all about the rain. But the culture that they were living in had different gods that were in charge of the rain. The Baal gods. They had had a different stock market there that they depended upon. The rise and fall of their stock market was based on their worship of Baal. 
And the people of Israel were buying into this idea that, hey, look at it's raining on their fields. Their God must be bringing this rain. God says, ask me and I will bring rain because I'm in charge of the rain. The reason there's rain falling on their fields is not because of Baal. It's because I am a gracious God and I cause the rain to fall on the godly and the ungodly alike. Because the ungodly end up growing crops that you buy and you eat because I'm keeping my people alive through the ungodly. And so um, he makes this strong case, ask me. It is the Lord who makes the storm clouds. He gives showers of rain to men and he plants, uh, he plants and, and plants of the field to everyone. If God fails to act, beloved, people fail to live. That's how central this is. Regardless of cultural sophistication or personal beliefs, mankind is completely dependent upon the whims of Almighty God. That's what the message is here for us. At the most basic need level of existence, it is God who provides. God is, whether you believe in Him or not. And the rain knows. Listen, you want to have an IQ that's above a carrot believe in God because the carrots do they know that's how they grow for you vegans who think you're not eating live things you are (laughs) vegetables they know that God raised them and so he says ask me and then there's a strong contrast of word between uh, verse 1 and verse 2 It doesn't show in the English. It's a small Hebrew word, kai, which means either because or but. In other words, God is saying, ask me because the idols will lead you astray. That's the strong contrast here. Ask me because idols will deceive you. Diviners will lie to you. And dreams will tell you false things. And they will give They will give comfort in vain. If you are relying on comfort through the gods of the culture and the diviners and and dreams, you will will not be comforted. You'll be comforted in vain. If people view God's messaging, in other words, and this is what Israel was doing. Israel was listening to their idols. They were listening to diviners. They were listening to their dreams because they were preferred things. When you start to listen to preferred things, if people view God's messaging through the lens of their own sinful preferences, they will wander aimlessly. Why? Because the messages that are not coming from God will try to convince you that you should conform God's word to your own preferences, which is the opposite purpose of God's word. God's word is given to us that we might no longer be conformed to the ideas of this culture, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds through the word of God. Idols talk to you. Now, I don't figure any of you got these wood things standing in a mantle somewhere, some sort of idol, and you walk by and talk to you. Anyway, if you do, don't even talk to me about it. But, But you've got idols that are talking to you. Everything that causes you to pause 
when God asks you to do something, is an idol. Everything that has a voice that interferes with your immediate obedience to the Lord is speaking as an idol in your life. It's seeking to replace the voice of God in your life. And that's why he talks here about idols speaking deceit. The method with which we get our messaging matters to the Lord as well as the messaging. Now you're going to hear voices from idols. It's your idols around you are going to say, well, that's, that's not practical. God's never asked you whether or not what he asks you to do is practical. Or that's not logical. Most of what God asks us to do is not logical. Leave your nets, guys. Leave your income. And follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Well, that's not practical and it's not logical. How are we going to feed our families? Leave your nets, guys. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. It's not practical. It's not logical. It's not hip. In 2018, we don't leave nets. Follow the Lord. It's not careful. It's not sophisticated. It's not intelligent. It's not scientific. It's not psychological. We have lots of idols talking to us. Wall Street's not telling me this, God. Diviners, listening to them, you're looking for the message of life from messengers of death. Dreams are quite unreliable. Trust God. Trust God's word, you trust God. You mistrust God's word, you mistrust God. You can't have God and not trust Him too. So that's the, that's the directionless shepherds, the directionless leaders. Quick, very quickly, what, what's the offer made here? By the way, um, God's anger burns. You notice here in verse 3, my anger burns against leaders like this. And I will punish them. All the religious leaders in the world today, no matter who they are, whether they call themselves Christian or not, come under that verse right there. If you aren't teaching that God is sovereign, that Christ is the Savior, God's anger burns. If you are inviting people to dabble in the culture and adjudicate God's word according to your feelings and your experiences, if you're being counseled by leaders to say that, that God's word is outdated and out of touch, then you come under the condemnation of verse 3. My anger, God says, burns against those shepherds. Now I will punish those leaders, but as for my people, I'm going to care for them myself. Isn't that good news? Amen. That's great news. The Lord himself says, I'm, I'm going to take it upon myself. 
I will care for my people, my flock. I'll make them a proud horse in battle. They won't be like wandering around, wandering sheep. I'll make them a proud, proud horse in battle. And they will walk, at the end of this text, they will walk strong. They will walk direction. They will walk with confidence. They will walk with security. They will walk with their heads up. Because I will strengthen them. So there's, there's the second kind of leadership is this promised cornerstone. From Judah will come the cornerstone. Messiah. Again. The king is coming. This is a series. Our series is entitled The King is Coming, in case you've forgotten. The king is coming. All throughout Zechariah, the king is coming. The king is coming. The king is coming. Messiah is coming. And we preach the same message. The king has come, and the king is coming. We continue to preach the same message. Because not all that's promised here has yet been fulfilled. The king is coming. Cornerstone leadership makes people walk strong. The rest of the verses here, cornerstone leadership, it's, it's gentle, it's caring, the gentle shepherd. Jesus called himself, I am the good shepherd, unlike these bad shepherds. And I am the king, it's a proud horse for battle, reinstating the Davidic kingship is all laid out for us here. The idea of cornerstone is, is an idea that this kind of leadership will do things that square with God's word. That's cornerstone leadership. Cornerstone leadership comes out of Christ. It says, from him, at the end of verse 4, every ruler. From him, every leader. Those who, are, who, who preach the truth of God's word come from the cornerstone himself, from Messiah. So, and he gives strength. And that idea is those who belong to him are drawn to this kind of leadership. Those who truly belong to Jesus Christ are drawn to leadership that is actually following the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you have here this strength uh, from which the whole building can depend. And there's three ideas that, that are, are going to be summarized here for us in, in, a, in a moment. And the first is that um, the promise of Messiah is the restoration of the misled. The restoration of the misled. Sheep submitted to the Lord's service become invincible war horses. The crosswork of Christ ha has battled the forces of evil and has won the victory. We're not, we're not here wondering if we're on, uh, you know, we're, we're not on the balance here wondering if, you know, we, we are presently hanging in the balance. No, this victory has been won for us. We sung rightly this morning when we said hell looked at the cross and, 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 and thought it had victory. But when Jesus arose, that's when life began and our lives began and our lives for all eternity are guaranteed to us. That's why the word survive in verse 9 is not proper. It's the word live, life. This is about life. Choose life. The restoration of the misled. We're an army, a peace corps, by the way, extending the victory of Jesus everywhere. We demonstrate that by his rule and reign in our lives. We extend who Christ is. And the battle is not won by fighting, it's won by suffering. I know we don't want to hear that, but it's the truth. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 25. Our Lord won the victory by suffering. So for now, in this time frame, we are battling for the cause of Christ and our time is spent in suffering. So 
restoration because the Lord is with them. Verse 5. Somebody you love this morning is, is following other voices. I want to encourage you. Don't give up. Keep calling out to the Lord. Keep faithful to the word of God yourself. Keep living with determination and commitment. Don't get sucked into the culture because Messiah is bringing restoration. That's what Jesus does. He also is bringing unification in verses 6 through 10. I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. Two different houses. Joseph represented the northern tribe, Judah the southern tribe. The northern tribes were lost. They thought scattered irreparably at the conquest in 722 BC with the Assyrians. It, it seemed impossible. How are the lost tribes ever going to come back? How is, how is God ever going to pull this back together? But it is promised through Messiah. And when Jesus called the 12, it's hard to resist seeing the church as a declaration of the reunification of Israel and the representative of those 12 tribes. The 12 men, the 12 apostles. In Revelation 21, 14, you've got 12 foundations. And on those 12 foundations are the names of the 12 apostles. And I believe that the idea here is the reunification of Israel has taken place as Jesus called forth the apostles with a final ingrafting, a regrafting of the natural branches. Now, I, I said this this morning, and I, I, I didn't read this anywhere. It just came to me, and, and uh, it may have come from the Holy Spirit. It may just be a, a, a figment of my imagination, my theological imagination. So take it for what it is. But I found it fascinating as I was thinking about this and praying about it. I was actually saying to the Lord, you know, because there's a lot of eschatological questions here, and there's a lot of people on this side and that side wondering what's going to happen with Israel and all that kind of stuff. And all I can say is that what I've noticed in the scriptures as I've been studying them is God always previews what he's going to do. You know, Isaac and Abraham, preview of cross. And, and we can go on and on. And it seems to me that there's interesting, when Jesus called the 12, one of them fell away. And part of the description in the scriptures of the end times is that there'll be a falling away you read that in Thessalonians, you read it in Jesus' words in Matthew 24. You can it talks there about a falling away. Judas fell away. And then they called Matthias and kind of grafted him back in as the 12th apostle. And I see this idea whereby it was a pre-picture of the, the uh, declaration of the reunification of, of Israel as had been promised... They dropped away, there's a falling away, and there's going to be a regrafting in, like Matthias, to bring in the promise that Christ has, the promise that God has made to his people. And I believe there is a history for Israel, and that's found in Romans 11, 25, 26, and to try and marry this whole idea of the new Israel and the regrafting of natural branches, I, I think has some merit in, uh, in what I just said to you, so you can think about it. And then there's a rescue, a final rescue here. They will pass through the sea of trouble. The surging sea will be subdued. And all the depths of now will dry up. Rescue of the troubled is certain. 
You know, when we talk about this idea of suffering, we just hear God's people constantly calling out, when, Lord, when? How long, O oh Lord? How long until you come and make all of this right? We read in the book of Revelation where the saints are crying out, the martyred saints are crying out, O oh Lord, how long, how long? And so it is with God's people today as we go through these difficult times. How long? We don't know how long, but we do know there's a promise to us. And the promise is that someday suffering is done with. The sea of trouble is over. If you're in a sea of trouble right now, it could be a long time. But I'm telling you, one day it's over. The sea of trouble is over. The Nile will dry up. Assyrian pride that has been oppressing you will be brought down. The Egyptian scepter, the idea of kingly authorities over you will pass away. And you will be strengthened to walk strongly in the Lord and in his name. This is a miraculous work of God that is promised to us. Now for a short period of time, we walk in trust in the Lord, entirely trusting Him. We proclaim the gospel until He comes. That's what we're called to do. And because, in verse 12, we have strengthened in the Lord, in His name, we will march strong as God's people with direction we know where we are going. He has transformed us from a weak and aimless and misguided and misled sheep people into a mighty army building his kingdom. This is my father's world. I don't know about you, but I get excited about that. This is my father's world, and he's in charge of it. I am a servant of the living God, the God who is actually alive and active and at work. I come in the name and in the authority of the King of kings and the Lord of all lords. Amen. This is the promise to us from God's word. We don't shrink back. We don't dabble in a culture that's dying and deceiving us. We come in the name of the Lord. And when we come in the name of the Lord, he strengthens us. And our heads are up. And we stand erect. And we march with direction and purpose. And we follow our king because we know where we are going. And we know who we are following. And we are guaranteed the promises of God. And that's nothing in culture attracts me in comparison to the promise of our great God who will rescue us. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for the encouragement of your word and the promises you have made to us, and you are a God who can deliver on his promises because you're the sovereign God, creator of the universe. We can count on your promises come to pass. You've already demonstrated it in Jesus Christ who you promised, and you have promised that the king is coming again, and everything will be made right. And so, Lord, in the meantime... You have left us here not to dabble in the culture, not to be swept into the ideas that will deceive us, but to listen to the voice of God and to ask you for rain. Oh God, for Jesus' sake, amen. Would you join me at the table of celebration this morning? Celebration of the table of the Lord, whereby we are going to partake of the emblems of our salvation, liberated from sin and self and Satan and set free to actually serve the living God, to say no to the culture and to say yes to Christ. 
So I encourage you, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you can amen the sermon that you just heard because it's true of your life, then you partake of the elements here. But if not, then my message to you is, why not? Why not receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior right now? God sent his son to the cross to die so that he would take your sins. He came and lived a perfect sinless life so that he could sacrifice on the cross for your sins. That by receiving him as Savior, by believing that he died for your sins, you can have a relationship with the living God through Christ Jesus. And you can have that right now, right today where you are. And I urge you, if you don't know Christ, you've never responded to him, that today you say yes to Jesus, the King, and invite him to come into your life and to change you, and he will, and then participate in the passing of these emblems. Beloved, this is our Father's world. We serve a living God. And he has invited us to follow him as he builds his kingdom. And we come in the name and in the authority of the living God. And we proclaim that truth and that gospel and that good news until he fulfills the promise he has made to us, which he will, to come again. The question that we must settle in our hearts is this. Is the living God the sovereign over my life or am I sovereign over my life? Our Father, we pray this morning that everyone in here will make the right choice. And we know, O oh Lord, that you superintend those right choices. And so because of your great power to save... Because of your promises to hold on to those that you have given to your Son, the Lord Jesus, we thank you now and we praise you. In the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, who will fulfill every promise, amen and amen.